More protesters join the throngs in Turkey today, Monday, June 3rd. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Protests continue in Turkey against the government's proposed development of a popular park. But it's about more than the park now. This protester says the police crackdown on protesters is only bringing more people out into the streets. Once they started with this violence, people just said this shouldn't be happening because it was so brutal. That's why I am here and most of these people are around are here. But some in Turkey caution that this is not a national revolution. Some people looking at the scenes, you know, police versus protesters, massive demonstrations, they said, oh, this is the Turkish version of the Arab Spring. That is not exactly the case. Plus, what's for lunch? We launch our new series on the future of food around the globe. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You've heard these sounds before. Whether it's Zuccotti Park in New York or Tahrir Square in Cairo, this is different. This is Turkey. And Turkey's democracy has mostly thrived. It's tried to balance its Islamic heritage and a modern secular state. But the Turkish state is now being challenged in a big way. Today, protesters in the capital Ankara threw stones at riot police and the police responded with tear gas and water cannons. This was the fourth day in a row that this has been going on, both in Ankara and Istanbul, where things started last week. Dalia Mortada is a freelance journalist in Istanbul. So, Dalia, you've been at these protests every day now since they started last week. Describe the buildup and how they've gone from just a few people to now many thousands along with police violence. The protest started early last week in protest of a building a mall on a park in the center of Istanbul. Uh, and they basically culminated when uh, police attacked protesters sleeping in the park at 5 o'clock in the morning and on Friday. After the police barricaded the park and stopped access to the park, protesters got very angry and social media basically mobilized the people to come out. The more violent that the interaction between police and protesters got, the more people started to come in support. Once the rest of the people got out of work, the protests swelled to the hundreds of thousands, and on Saturday and Sunday uh, over the weekend, protests spread to about 67 cities, I've heard. Wow. So where do things stand today, Monday? On Monday, uh, Gezi Park and Taksim Square, which are both in the center of Istanbul, are basically the land of the protesters. They're able to walk freely, they're celebrating, they're dancing, they're singing, they're signing petitions, they're cleaning up the park after a lot of damage and trash from from the protests on, on Friday and Saturday. And they're just sort of hanging out together and making themselves visible. So the police have been using tear gas and water cannons to uh, disperse protesters. What has been the official government response, though, to, to what's going on? You know, initially on Saturday, there was a report that Prime Minister Erdogan had come out and said that, you know, the, there was an excessive use of tear gas and that was wrong. After that statement, however, uh, some of the clashes had moved down to another neighborhood in Istanbul and even more tear gas was used there. So did these protests have a leader? 
Uh, they don't. They don't at all, actually. These protests are, are basically everyone and anyone that has something to say. There's about 50% of the population that has voted in favor of the current ruling party. But there's 50% of the population that's also voted for a number of other parties. Uh, since one party has obviously 50% of the vote, they have the majority in the government. And, and so what protesters are saying is that they're not being heard since they're not voters in that party. So the government is basically a one-party rule. So, Dahlia, I gather you've got a protester standing with you. Her name is Denise. Could I have a word with her real quick? Absolutely. Here's Denise. Denise, hello. This is Marco Werman from the public radio program The World in Boston. Do you feel like all these people have now come out and it's kind of turned these demonstrations into a protest against Prime Minister Erdogan? Do you feel that? It is, it is, because once uh, the police started to use this excessive amount of tear gas, it wasn't tear gas anymore, it was used like a chemical weapon. So people were so angry because the government didn't make any explanation, anything to stop it. Once it became really cruel and brutal and people started to get hurt, got to hospitals, there were news about people were getting really, really bad injuries from all the gas. Um, when they had, they, they didn't make any any explanation, and they they had this media censorship, so people got really really mad, and it became something against government and Erdogan itself, also because his disinterest in all the things going on, and afterwards his strange explanations about we don't care about what you're doing, we will do whatever we want to do. So people said no. Denise, how do you see these protests ending? Um, I don't know. I don't know yet. I don't know because it didn't start as uh, protests of a party, of a group who wants to change things politically or do some very big change, revolution in the country. It just started something about this park. So I don't know where it is going. I don't think anyone knows. Currently, it feels like we're just standing here and raising our voice to be heard. All right, Denise, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, and thanks very much to Dalia Mortada before you. All the best. Thank you. Bye. The unrest in Turkey is exposing deep and long-standing frustrations in Turkish society, but Mustafa Akyol wouldn't compare it to the Arab uprisings of recent years. Akyol is a journalist and author in Istanbul. Some people looking at the scenes, you know, police versus protesters, massive demonstrations, they said, oh, this is the Turkish version of the Arab Spring. That is not exactly the case, because uh, here in Turkey, we don't have a dictatorship. We have an elected government. I mean, we have a functioning democracy. It's not a very good democracy. There are many flaws, and that's the reason why we are having these issues. But the government in power have been rolling, running the country for 10 years. In free and fair elections, they get elected. And in that sense, Erdogan is very popular. But there's one problem. The people who do not vote for Erdogan, they cannot get their voice, voice heard by any, in any of his decisions. And his political style, especially in the past few years, has gone a bit more intimidating uh, towards the opponents. He just thinks that, well, I got the vote. I make the decisions. So people, some people say he's a dictator. That's wrong. He's elected and he's popular. Uh, but he's not behaving as democratically as he should be. So, uh, Mustafa, you voted for Prime Minister Erdogan in the past. I mean, you may not agree with this supermajority uh, that he rules with right now, but do you still support Erdogan? I do. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I think Erdogan government has done great things for Turkey in the past decades. Uh, the economy booms, that's for sure. They've also made many liberal reforms, 
which helped the country's Kurdish minority, the Christian minority. Uh, he initiated important constitutional changes. So there's a very bright side of the picture if you want to focus on that. And that's why people like me have voted for him. Would you vote for him again? I have to see the option. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, the, right now, the opposition is no way more liberal than Erdogan. I mean, some of, I should say that some of the opponents in the streets are ultra-nationalists who protest his peace deal with the Kurdish separatists. Uh, so not everybody who opposes him are doing this on, in my view, are on legitimate grounds. Well, do you think Prime Minister Erdogan is in a position to change, to kind of uh, become a different prime minister and start listening to people? Well, in the past, Erdogan has proven pragmatic and he has backed off some of his mistakes. Uh, we will see. I mean, this will be a turning point in Turkish political history. Either Erdogan will change his course a little bit. Uh, speak for a consensus on controversial issues, on culture wars that is going on in Turkey, mm. and have more dialogue with people who think differently, or he will insist in the current course. And that will be the beginning of his political decline, I would say. Journalist Mustafa Akiol, author of Islam Without Extremes, a Muslim case for liberty. He was speaking with us from Istanbul. Mustafa, thank you very much. My pleasure. Anytime, Marco. The protests in Turkey don't compare at all with the civil war next door in Syria. So perhaps the embattled Syrian government was just desperate to make a point when it issued this travel warning to its citizens. It told Syrians to avoid travel to Turkey because of the current unrest there. Pot calling kettle black a bit, maybe? The conflict in Syria has been grinding on for more than two years, and neither side has been able to dislodge the other. That stalemate is painfully evident to the residents of the eastern city of Deir Ezzor near the Iraqi border. Reporter Marine Olivezi made a rare visit to the city and sent us this report. They call it the Bridge of Death, and that's the only way in and out of the city. Over the past year, civilians and fighters were crossing the Euphrates by boat. But recently, the riverbanks came under shelling, and now even the so-called Bridge of Death is considered safer. Abu Ayyub is the commander of one of the main Free Syrian Army brigades in Derzor. He phones in to see if the regime's snipers have targeted the bridge this morning. It's been quiet so far, and we get the green light to cross. Here we are now approaching the bridge. The commander is behind the wheel. The car is speeding through the bridge to avoid any possible sniper fire. It's quite the nerve-wracking experience that the civilians have... Whoa. Abu Ayyub hits the brakes a little too hard. The car spins 180 degrees before landing in a sand hill. The men quickly inspect the car and drive on. We're now inside Derizor. Look. Wow. Look. Everywhere you look, it's the same sight of sheer destruction. There's simply not a single building that hasn't been hit by some kind of artillery, gunfire, mortar shells. The first people we see are a dozen men with shovels and bright yellow jackets. These locals fight the regime of Bashar al-Assad at night. During the day, they clean up the ravages of war. It's a daunting task, but an urgent one. Ahmed al-Yusuf from the local council says people are getting sick because of the trash. They worry especially about insects and the diseases they bring. As we speak, more shelling... More work for later. The cleaning squad collects the rubble and trash, but they can't take it out of town. 
that would mean crossing the bridge. And trash isn't worth the risk. We walk away from the main street and continue our visit. Birds chirp, kids run after a soccer ball, and then... We just heard these half-dozen rockets, but what's really striking is that there's no reaction from anyone around. No one is running for cover. These couple of kids continue driving the bicycle. They tell me that part of it has to do with the fact that they're just so used to it by now. With some days, several hundreds of shells and rockets landing inside the town, a year later it made them quite immune to that sense of fear. Others just say, we'll die whenever we'll die. There's nothing we can do about it. So life just goes on, no matter what. Schools open a few hours in the afternoon. Falafel vendors sell hundreds of deep-fried bowls every day, and people still get married. I get invited to a wedding party. It's for women only. There are about 50 of them. The younger ones let their hair down and belly dance. The bride glitters with sparkling powder. She's getting married to a fighter from Jabal al-Nusra, the Islamic brigade affiliated with al-Qaeda. Her friend says he could well die tomorrow, but the choice is between this or living like the dead already. Like elsewhere in Syria, the revolution has turned here into a war of attrition. Front lines cut through the city, neighborhoods, sometimes even homes. But overall, enemy lines haven't moved in months. Abu Amar and Ahmed, two brothers and fighters, blame Western countries for the stalemate. Ahmed says America's inaction has squeezed moderates out of power here. Anyone try to help you, bad, good, you will agree. You will agree to that. No problem. Anyone help you, no problem. How much he's bad, just help you to fight this uh, system. Anyone. It's a point I've heard over and over again in Derizor. People here spend hours every day re-ashing the turn of events with conversations filled with what-ifs and if-only. In a street close by, three men play an old traditional song. And for a few minutes, their tune fills up the night, puts off the nattering, and covers the sound of war. For The World, I'm Marine Olivesi, Derezor, Syria. Marine sent us pictures from this embattled Syrian city, including one of a playground turned into a cemetery. You can see that slideshow at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The court-martial of Army Private First Class Bradley Manning finally started today. Manning was arrested more than three years ago, accused of leaking hundreds of thousands of classified U.S. government documents. The former Army intelligence analyst has admitted that he gave the documents to the anti-secrecy group WikiLeaks. Manning faces 20 years in prison for that. But prosecutors also want a conviction on the charge of aiding the enemy, which carries a possible life sentence. The world's Arun Roth is in Fort Meade, Maryland, where the trial got underway today. Aiding the enemy is the most serious charge against Manning. And to prove that, the government has to show that he knew that this information that he was releasing could get into the hands of the enemy, in this case being al-Qaeda. And they're actually citing evidence uh, that Bradley Manning had access to. There were internal military reports 
that specifically talked about the threat WikiLeaks posed in terms of their threats to force protection and how the enemy did use WikiLeaks as a source of information. In other words, the prosecution is charging that Bradley Manning did this deliberately. Well, maybe not that uh, he specifically wanted to give this to al-Qaeda, but that by releasing it to WikiLeaks, he knew that information would get into the hands of the enemy. So how did the defense respond to that? They say very simply that that is not the case. The prosecution was saying that Bradley Manning was indiscriminate in how he chose to release all of these huge amounts of documents. The defense counters that actually, no, he was in fact selective. They said that he had access to hundreds of millions of documents and selected these ones in particular, not to aid the enemy, but to generate a national debate about what was going on in our wars. I mean, even for Manning supporters, though, there's a belief that his story is that of a whistleblower who had access to tons of classified documents and just downloaded the whole mess to a shareable format. That sounds pretty indiscriminate. Will this be a tough case for the defense to prove? Well, they're saying that he was selective and specifically chose information that he believed could not be used against the U.S. Now, I know this is the first day of the trial, but did you find anything surprising in how the defense and prosecution debated this? Well, we knew it was going to be said along these terms, whether he's a whistleblower or whether or not he should be held to account for the leaks. One thing that was interesting, though, is that there is a discrepancy of timelines. The prosecution is alleging that Manning basically started to leak information and started to work with WikiLeaks almost from the moment he got to Iraq. The defense, however, says that it was actually an incident a couple of months into his stay in Iraq, which sort of changed his mind and sort of changed him into thinking that he wanted to be a whistleblower. For the defense, it's showing that for Bradley Manning, he did not come in intending to do damage, that he saw things that he thought were terrible in Iraq. He saw how he thought that Iraqi lives were valued much less than American lives. And that was what he saw. And then there was a change that took place in Bradley Manning. And it was not that he had this kind of wicked plan to come in and do this, but that he had a change of perspective during his deployment that changed everything for him. So, Arun, you've been closely on top of the Manning case since it began three years ago. But today, with the start of this trial, it seems as if you're not the only one interested in in what's going on in this trial. What was the scene at Fort Meade and in the courtroom today? Well, in terms of the attention, Marco, it has been like night and day. The last time we spoke, there were just a handful of people here. Today, there are 70 spaces for reporters in the media center. There were 350 applications for those spaces. Also, a good number of protesters and just citizens who wanted to see what's going on in the trial. So there is a lot of activity, a lot of people here today. The world's Arun Roth at Fort Meade at the trial of Bradley Manning. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Marco. I think like all brown Muslim girls, they get like layers and just like long layers. Everybody does that. It's so common. Mm -hmm. But do you have any suggestions for something that's like that, but a little bit different? Yasmin Shafiq lives in Virginia. She's 27, the daughter of Bangladeshi immigrants, and she wears a headscarf. On this day, she's at a hair salon outside Washington, D.C. that caters to Muslim women who wear the hijab. I've done bangs, but with a with a scarf, it can like they fall in front and, and it can be annoying. The star, They're all messy. over the place. Yeah, we do so many people from her country. So yeah, we know. This, this hair salon does a lot of people who wear scarves, and so they're yeah. used to like the kind of uh-huh. we want something practical that's like easy to keep under a scarf and easy to take care of. We're at Illusions Hair Salon in Herndon, Virginia. What's great about it is that they have a private room with a shampoo station in it. So sometimes you go, like, women who wear hijab go to hair salons and 
the shampoo station is obviously outside of whatever private room they're getting their hair cut in, so it's kind of a hassle. You have to, like, wrap a towel around really quick. And, but this place is nice because you can get your hair shampooed and your hair cut in the same room. There's a JCPenney that has a hair salon nearby, and they kind of stick you in a back storage room. And it's, it's okay because you still get a haircut, but, you know, it's not the greatest atmosphere. And um, you do kind of feel like you're being sho- shoved in a corner. I've taken my scarf off because you can't get a haircut with your scarf on. This is the best part, the shampoo. Yeah, it's nice when they have, like, the real chairs and stuff, especially if you're going to pay that much for a haircut. (laughs) I brought my mom here, like, a month ago, and my mom has never had a professional haircut. She just, it's not something she's ever cared to, to, to do or to spend the money on, and because she covers her hair all the time. That's yeah. why nobody can see yeah. her hair. My mom wears a scarf, too, so mm-hmm. she's never felt the need to get a professional haircut. and It's just something my friends have done, so I guess I picked it up along the way, and I brought her here to do it. And She was amused by it. <laughs> she's just, you know, her, her mentality is that I could just do this at home, but I'll, I'll, I'll humor you and go with you. Now, I know this part stinks for the hairstylist because I'm going to tie it up and put a scarf on top of it. Oh, there's a million different ways to tie your headscarf. I am not that talented, so I usually stick to one or two, depending on the shape of the scarf. If it's like a long rectangular scarf, I don't use pins and I just wrap it around. If it's um, the square hijabs, and then I like fold it in half into a triangle and like pin it under my neck and then... Uh, take the ends and kind of put them behind but there's a million ways to do it and I am just not coordinated enough to do it cool ways some people tie it in like a bun and there's like websites you can go on anything you do for your appearance is is for yourself as as much as it is for anybody else obviously I don't get compliments on my hair when I go out and that's not what I'm looking for but I want to look at myself in the mirror and 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 say hey I like my haircut Yasmin Shafiq getting her haircut there in a salon in Herndon, Virginia. She told her story to producer Jana McCone. The German language has just had a haircut of sorts. It's lost a word, a long one, too. Rindfleischetikierungsüberwachungsaufgabenübertragungsgesetz. Rindfleisch and then something. You don't think I'm going to repeat that whole thing, do you? Well, this word is the name of a law in Germany, a law governing the delegation of monitoring beef labeling. It doesn't come up too often in conversation, and it isn't even listed in dictionaries, but because it's made regular appearances in government documents, it's considered a word by German linguists, and its real claim to fame is that it's Germany's longest word, or rather, it was. The law that this word refers to has been repealed. The European Union is taking over the job of testing cattle, so this word no longer has a reason to exist. You know, just for old times' sake, let's hear it again. Rindfleischetikierungsüberwachungsaufgabenübertragungsgesetz. And the great thing about German is that it's so easy to create new, insanely long compound nouns if you want to. In fact, if you really wanted to, and there was a chance that Germans would start using it, you could make this word longer by adding one more noun, reform, like this. Rindfleischetikierungsüberwachungsaufgabenübertragungsgesetzreform. See how easy it is when you know how to do it? For more on German and many other languages, check out our podcast, The World in Words. That's at theworld.org slash language. This is The World from PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, Japan's new prime minister was elected five months ago, but he's not living in his official residence. Some say it's because it's haunted, which isn't out of the question in Japan. I stood there in the silence and the wind blew and I felt like something passed through me or past me. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. What's for lunch? It's one of my favorite questions, always. You listeners have been helping us with answers in recent days, Instagramming your meals using the hashtag What's for Lunch and telling us how what you eat might be changing because of climate change. What's for Lunch? It's also the name of an upcoming series of reports on the world. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, is producing the series. Why are we featuring these stories, Peter, and why the name What's for Lunch? Well, the inspiration for the series, Marco, was really just a couple of of very basic facts that are both at once very simple and incredibly complicated. The first is that growing enough food is really the basis of human civilization. It's always been a big challenge, but it's becoming even more so because of the second of these facts, which is that agriculture is really right in the crosshairs of climate change. All right. How so? Well, some of the most basic effects of climate change will have huge impacts on agriculture. Think of things like rising sea levels, rising temperatures, changing patterns of rainfall and drought, where and when insects show up. And then at the same time, agriculture itself is a major part of the climate problem because it uses huge amounts of fossil fuels, and it also produces huge amounts of greenhouse gases. So how we get our food will change. And together with the folks at Homelands Productions, who are our partners in this project, we wanted to talk with people around the world who are working on some of those changes. And as for the name, lunch, I guess in some ways, is is the most ordinary of meals. And we thought it would help us capture how this massive global challenge is going to affect some of the most mundane parts of our lives. I mean, my own little contribution to this global challenge is I try to shop as locally as possible now. I've been illustrating my habits on Instagram, like our listeners, using that hashtag, what's for lunch, what's number four lunch. And it's making me think. uh, But the toughest thing about all this climate change versus food puzzle for me is getting information about the food I eat, where it comes from. How is all this affecting you personally? Well, I I think about this stuff all the time, and it's just as hard for me, I think, and my family, as it is for for you and for everybody else who, who tries to be aware of the environmental impact of their food. Where our food comes from, your question is certainly a big part of that, not merely because of the food miles issue, how far our food travels to get to us, but also because one really important response to the challenge of climate change is building local resilience. Food supplies are going to be disrupted to different degrees at different times in different places, which makes it really important for every region to be as self-sufficient as possible. Not an easy task, of course. No place will ever be able to completely achieve it. Just as important, of course, are things like cutting down on the energy and other inputs that go into our food. There are resources out there that can help people figure these things out, but it can still be incredibly difficult. Our hope is that the series and our online components of it will help our listeners at least a bit. 
So what are some of the highlights? Well, we're going to be looking at solutions uh, people are working on around the world, local, global, high-tech, low-tech. So just to sort of illustrate that range, we're going to be going to Mexico, where a grain that was once a staple there is uh, being brought back. It's called amaranth. It's extremely nutritious, just as important. It's very resistant to drought, heat, and pests. We'll also be going to the Netherlands, where researchers are exploring alternatives to traditional animal protein, among them things like lab-grown meat. Lab-grown meat. I don't know how I feel about that. So what are we going to hear today? So to kick things off, we're heading to Singapore, which is one of the most crowded places on Earth. We're going to look at the emerging phenomenon of super-efficient vertical farming. A reporter for today's story is Sam Eaton. All right, let's get in the elevator. Thank you, Peter Thompson, the world's environment editor. Now here is Sam Eaton in Singapore. Every night around midnight, hundreds of trucks enter Singapore from Malaysia and beyond, unloading their cargoes of imported fruits and vegetables at the sprawling Pasir Panjang Wholesale Center. Buyers pick through bends of bok choy, chives, and eggplant, then load their goods onto smaller trucks and fan out before sunrise across this crowded city-state of more than 5 million people. It's a window into the complex daily supply chain of fresh food in a country that grows only 7% of its produce. It's also a window into the future. Over half of the world's population could rely on food imports by 2050, a trend driven by more and more people moving to cities and more and more farmland succumbing to sprawl and climate change. But that's according to the old paradigm, where food was something that came from the ground. This whole area will be 720 tower for one block. On a nine-acre industrial plot on Singapore's urban fringe, 50-year-old entrepreneur Jack Ng is building a series of what look like giant shrink-wrapped boxes, nearly four stories tall. Walk inside these transparent structures and you enter one of the most efficient food production systems on the planet. It's called SkyGreens. This is our aluminum A-frame system. Hundreds of 30-foot-tall aluminum A-frames are stacked with tiers of lettuce and Chinese cabbage all the way to the ceiling. It's a technology Ng invented. So this is my water wheel. Yeah, we are using this water wheel to turn this power. That water wheel is basically the system's hydraulic engine. Water flows down through a pipe from a tank near the top and spins a turbine that rotates each tower's 38 tiers of plants like a Ferris wheel ensuring equal exposure to the sunlight above and a micro-sprinkler system below. All the water is filtered and reused. The greens are grown without chemical inputs in organic soil composted from food waste. And the only energy consumed runs a low-power pump that returns the water back to the top. Electricity you use is $3 per month for this whole tower. That's about the equivalent of running one 60-watt light bulb. Each of the A-frames costs around $12,000 to build, but their small footprint makes them up to 10 times more productive per square foot than conventional farming. And in a country with the third densest population on the planet and with some of the world's highest land values, that cost-to-productivity ratio is key to SkyGreen's early success. Lee Seng Kong directs Singapore's National Institute of Education. An urban farming model must, first of all, be highly productive. Whatever we produce in Singapore must compete with the prices of vegetables coming into Singapore. At the supermarkets where many of those imports end up, Sky Green's produce sells for only about 10% more than greens from Malaysia and China. That premium reflects both the high startup costs and the high rents for Singapore land. 
But the price will only fall as the technology advances, says Columbia University ecologist Dixon Despommier. He says a good example of that is the improvements in the efficiency of LED lighting. Uh, eventually, the physicist will emerge with a 100% efficient LED light. And that's not too far in the distant future. When that happens, then you will be as efficient as a plant of converting sunlight to chemical energy. Enabling urban farming to move into vacant office towers and repurposed factories, since energy costs and sunlight would no longer be limiting factors. And with advances in aeroponics, where nutrients and water are sprayed directly onto exposed plant roots, even soil becomes unnecessary. Despamier says much of this is already happening, and not just in Singapore, in Vancouver, in Tokyo, even in Brooklyn. Premium leafy green vegetables and microgreens are the main crops today, but that's just the beginning. In the very near future, this technology will spread, and it will start to encompass basic crops like rice, wheat, potatoes, and other root vegetables. And then you've got this industrial snowball. The next thing you know, you've got Singapore producing 10, 20, 30 percent of its produce. And that's exactly what Singapore hopes to achieve. The city has invested $20 million in a fund to boost domestic produce, fish, and egg production through new technologies like SkyGreens. Jack Ng claims his rotating vertical farming system could increase Singapore's locally grown produce by a factor of seven, all while using only a fraction of the land and water used in conventional agriculture and about a quarter of the labor and materials. And then there's the reduced carbon footprint of food that doesn't require massive fossil fuel inputs. But just as important, to his customers at least, Ng says his greens taste better. And they do. We sit down together on the farm to a lunch of fresh-picked bok choy, lettuce-wrapped pork, and soup with greens. This one is long tao fu. With some foreign produce taking weeks to reach Singapore's shelves, Ng says that day of freshness is driving demand for his product. My customer is still asking, can you produce more? Can you supply more? Ng has raised $28 million in public and private money to more than quadruple his capacity. This one urban vertical farm won't protect Singapore from a rise in climate-related disruptions to the global food supply, but it's an investment that may well pay off especially as the city adds an expected 2 million more mouths to feed by 2030. For The World, I'm Sam Eaton, Singapore. Our What's for Lunch series is part of Food for Nine Billion, a collaborative project with Homelands Productions, PBS NewsHour, American Public Media's Marketplace, and the Center for Investigative Reporting. We've got lots of food pictures, food porn with a purpose column. You can find out much more as well at theworld.org. An update now on another series we've got underway, School Year. The world's Anders Kelto is in Cape Town, South Africa, where all year he's following the lives of students and teachers at a high school. That school is the Center of Science and Technology, COSAT for short, and it serves an impoverished area of Cape Town. Anders has been talking with students there recently about corporal punishment, which is actually banned in South Africa. It was banned in 1996, which is the year that South Africa ratified its current constitution. It's one of the very few, if not the only, countries in Africa that does not allow corporal punishment. But it was apparently a response to a rather abusive situation in South Africa where kids were being beaten and often beaten severely in the public school system. So part of embracing democracy 
in the eyes of South Africans, was protecting the rights of children and protecting them physically in the schools. But I gather you still find corporal punishment uh, rather widely across South Africa, and it's apparently in the news recently because a teacher accidentally blinded a student with his belt, and that case went to court. What happened? Yeah, well, the incident actually happened 10 years ago, and Mm -hmm. it was finally resolved about a week and a half ago. A court ruled that the victim should be awarded about $400,000 to compensate him for lost schooling, lost work opportunities, medical bills, trauma, and so on. So that was a, a pretty big ruling. That's a very large sum of money for a case like this. And one thing is certain, and that is that corporal punishment is very widespread in South Africa. I have a friend who was in the Peace Corps in a rural part of South Africa, and he told me that literally every day he would see a kid getting beaten, usually by a, a plastic pipe. And it's especially problematic in the rural areas where a lot of teachers just sort of have this sense that they're free to do whatever they want. And culturally, a lot of people sort of feel like they're almost part of their own nation, that they don't really have to respect these national rules, these federal rules. And if in their culture, kids have always been beaten in school, then they think they have the right to do that. And they do. So talk about the high school that you've been covering this year, COSAT. This is a specialized kind of a model high school. Do kids there get beaten by their teachers? No, COSAT seems to be one of the few schools where kids don't get beaten. I walked into a classroom just last week and I I took a little survey. I said, how many of you um, have been to a school where children have been beaten? And literally every single kid in the class raised their hand. For example, I spoke with uh, an eighth grade girl named Yonela who said at her previous elementary school, kids would regularly get beaten, usually on the hands or on the buttocks with a plastic pipe or a cane. And when she came to COSAT, it was like this aha moment for her. Like she didn't even realize that that students could be disciplined in other ways. And she said she now much prefers the type of discipline used at COSAT. Like detention and getting them out of the class for at least two minutes of their lesson. So do you think? Do you now think that this is that's a better form of punishment? Yeah, it's better because sometimes when they beat you in primary school, you get sore hands and couldn't write your your work. So that was another reason that pushed us not to them not to do their homeworks. Well, Anders, I got to say, you know, I I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa as a teacher, and I could see how the culture of corporal punishment kept kids in line, and they they knew what the consequences were if they stepped out of line, and that kept things pretty well disciplined. Did you hear any students talk about how misbehaving kids sitting next to them in class could be kept in order this way? Yeah, some some of the kids could at, at the very least see both sides of the issue. They they understood that sometimes it is necessary to give kids a, a lash on the hands or a smack on the butt. And some teachers at COSAT are actually supportive of corporal punishment. And I, I spoke with several who said that although they don't think severe beatings should be allowed, they do think that mild beatings or controlled lashings, things like that, should be allowed because it allows them to institute some discipline within the classroom in a very clear and powerful way and in a way that allows the kids to stay in the classroom and not miss out on the lesson. Well, we've got a lot more from Anders' year-long series online, including videos and pictures and his blog from COSAT. It's all at theworld.org slash school year. The World's Africa correspondent, Anders Kelta. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Marco. A teenage writer from Ireland is going to help us with our geo quiz today. Teenage writer Owen Moore is from the city in Ireland we want you to name, and he's written a short story that supposedly captures his city's essence. Every playwright and poet, every politician and every rebel, 
Every merchant, student and busker who ever set foot in the city holds or held onto a chunk of this city's soul. Every one of them stepped to the city's heartbeat. I listen to the streets at night and I can feel the city's lifeblood pumping through me. That's just a sample. We'll hear the whole short story in a minute. First, though, name the city. It's long been associated with great writers like Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, William Butler Yeats, and Mr. Waiting for Godot, Samuel Beckett. The city is halfway up Ireland's east coast, and it was once a Viking settlement. The river Liffey made it easy for Viking ships to sail in and out. We're back in a moment with the answer. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. An Irish city famous for its literature is in our GeoQuiz crosshairs today. The answer is Dublin. The list of writers, poets, and playwrights associated with Dublin is a long one. And now you can add Owen Moore to that list. As a 17-year-old, he wrote a short story describing the essence of Dublin as part of a creative writing program for teenagers called Fighting Words. His story was chosen to be published, but the coolest thing about it is it's now been published on Ireland's newest postage stamp. Yep, all 224 words of it. The 60-cent stamp celebrates Dublin's designation as a UNESCO City of Literature. It's a bright yellow rectangular stamp with just enough space to display Owen's story. Curious about what a story that fits on a stamp sounds like? Yeah, well, so do I. So here's Owen Moore reading the whole thing. The thick clouds cover up the moonlight, but the city's lights provide worthwhile illumination. Above them all, the beacon burns bright atop the monolithic podium, signaling to wayfaring voyagers the ancient Viking settlement. Now, where Norsemen once stood, I look back, along the quays, streets and alleys, to where the inhabitants live their lives, eating, speaking, and breathing their city into existence. It gives me cause to wonder as I stroll aimlessly along the cobbled paths about those who have traversed them before me, by carriage or before there were even cobbles to walk upon. I feel their lives and mine are somehow connected, that we all were at one point a part of this city, living pieces of its grand, striking framework. Every hiking and scholar, every playwright and poet, every politician and every rebel, every merchant, student and busker who ever set foot in the city holds or held onto a chunk of this city's soul. Every one of them stepped to the city's heartbeat. I listen to the streets at night and I can feel the city's lifeblood pumping through me. I can feel myself flowing through it. All of us who travel those arteries step on the words, actions and lives of those who travelled them before us. The city embodies the people and the people embody the city. One minute and 14 seconds long, in case you were wondering. That was Owen Moore reading his short story about Dublin. He's off to a great start with that debut. It's featured on a new bright yellow 60-cent stamp now available at Irish post offices. You heard it. Now see it for yourself at theworld.org. That story about Dublin evokes the city's past residents, but not their ghosts. For our final story today, though, we're definitely talking ghosts, the ones supposedly lurking in the official residence of Japan's prime minister. Shinzo Abe came to power five months ago, yet he has not moved into his country's equivalent of the White House. Some suspect that's because the place has a reputation for being haunted. The government says Abe simply prefers to live and work elsewhere. But the supernatural is on the minds of many Japanese, says Roland Kelts. He writes about Japanese pop culture probably a couple of traditions to cite here. One is Shinto, which is the Japanese national faith, 
one of the tenets of Shinto is that every object has a spirit. Mm. Something as simple as a pen has a spirit within or a rock. Uh, so this idea that the world is in fact animated around you runs through Japanese culture to some degree. If you add to that Japan's ongoing anxieties over World War II and what happened there, you know, the ghosts that have been referenced in the prime minister's residence are almost always described as soldiers in military uniform. When I was in Japan a couple of years ago, I became fascinated by this manga illustrator and writer, Shigeru Mizuki, who has published sure. this two-volume encyclopedia called Yokai, which is a whole catalog of ghosts, almost like they're Catholic saints. Talk about how Japanese attach themselves to these ideas of ghosts and associated with different objects. You mentioned uh, Shigeru-san's uh, work and and how ghosts are described in very, very you know, meticulous detail. Mm. Uh, they have personal histories. They have quirks. You know, Japan is not what we in the West would think of as a religious culture, but in many respects, it's a very spiritual culture. What about Japanese kids? Do they sit around at sleepovers or, or at camps telling ghost stories? I can't be the authority on that because <laughs> I haven't hung around with a lot of Japanese children <laughs> right. recently, but I'm quite sure they do. I think what's interesting historically about this, this story about the prime minister's residence, on the one hand, is that Japan is currently undergoing something of an identity crisis in its post-war incarnation, having for so many years followed the lead of the United States and coming up now against a rising Asia. And so the Japan of the post-war years is suddenly looking away from America for new partners. So with this identity crisis going on, there are these ghosts haunting Japan related to its experiences in World War II. So this notion that these ghosts in the prime minister's residence may be <laughs> disgruntled soldiers is quite compelling historically at the very moment of Japan's current identity crisis. So Roland, I guess the question I have for you is, does Prime Minister Abe believe this ghost story business about the, the Prime Minister's residence? <laughs> well, he certainly doesn't officially believe in it. Um, the statement from his office was um, quite vague, as in sort of like we don't know what you're talking about. But <laughs> it's important to look at his own past. Abe was Prime Minister quite recently, and in 2007, his term was cut short because he actually complained of a stomach illness and more or less resigned amid some charges of corruption. You know, maybe he got his stomach illness when he was in the prime minister's residence and uh, whatever caused it, maybe it's something he doesn't want to repeat. Ghost anxiety, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. Have you ever seen a ghost in Japan, Roland? Actually, I can say that I felt a ghost. Tell us. And it was when I, I was up in um, Tohoku, the region, northern Japan, that was hit hardest by the tsunami and earthquake right. in 2011. And I was actually visiting a school where a lot of the refugees were housed immediately after the disaster. And uh, there were a couple of children's slippers on the floor next to me. And I stood there in the silence and the wind blew and I felt like something passed through me or past me in that hallway of that school. You know, I was also up in Tohoku uh, two months after the tsunami, and I, I didn't have that sensation, but we had the GPS on in the car, and it said, 
up ahead on your right is a 7-Eleven, and it wasn't there. So, you know, there are a lot of ghosts in Japan. There are, and, and certainly in that region, the sheer number of dead and the absences you feel when you look around and see these hollowed-out portions of towns and cities, it's easy to feel something else in the air. Roland Kelts writes about pop culture in Japan. Roland, good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And we end the program today with a ghostly Japanese ditty, Kagome Kagome, a traditional children's game and the song that goes along with it. In the game, one kid is chosen to be the oni, or demon, and stands in the middle of a circle as the other children walk around and sing. Not ghost spooky, but spooky all the same. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI. Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI, Public Radio International.